Okay, uh, if you're new here, uh, my name is Mike Foost. I am a person at the church. I hold no official office or authority here. Uh, we just ran out of people to preach, really. Uh, Dan, uh, Pastor Dan uh, Hudson, who is our lead pastor, is on a well-deserved vacation with his family. And so um, he's uh, hanging out there, so uh, you know that's, that's good for him. Um, second in, in command when it comes to preaching duties is a, uh, a man who looks very similar to me. Uh, named Ben Foost, he's my twin brother, and uh, he is sick in bad ways. Bad ways kind of sick. And so um, I can, I'm basically going to read what he's written, and there will be words that are bigger than I would normally use, and it will be noticeable. So be prepared for that awkwardness, because it's going to come up. Um, and so anyway, um, we'll just pray that the, uh, God has a way of taking, doesn't matter what I say, um, and turning it around in your heart to make it what he wants it to be. So I could, I'm really not that worried about it, but just be prepared for awkward vocabulary silences and uh, pauses and whatnot. Okay, so um, we are, I, we're, we're in the middle of doing an Acts, uh, a sermon series through the book of Acts, and I think we took a break from that to go through Christmas, and it kind of leaves us a couple oddball weeks uh, where we're just talking about random, here's stuff. And I think that's the, the context of today's sermon. And we're going to start with a quick story that actually hopefully you've heard before um, because of the recent time of year. So uh, near the turn of the first century in Rome, heralds were sent out to spread the news of a new star that appeared in the sky. The son of a god was to be on the throne. The heralds declared that the prince of peace had now come. They also said that it was the mighty one who rules with his right hand that was now the king. You guys got to answer this for me. This is the story of... Octavian. Octavian is the man's name. When the Roman emperor Julius Caesar died in 43 BC, his son Octavian intended to take the throne. Uh, It would be a number of years before this actually happened uh, due to some infighting between uh, Brutus, Cleopatra, Mark Antony. Um, Some of you guys know history. I do not. Those are just names that are written on the page. So something happened there. I'm not sure what When he does finally take the throne after what appears to be some Roman infighting, uh, Roman history records that Octavian sends out heralds. Uh, The word they use here when they describe it is evangelion, the same word that we use for gospel. Uh, He sends evangelion out with the message that a new star had appeared in the sky, and this was his father, Julius Caesar. This is politically genius, and and you'll see why here in just a second. The star, the star was there because Julius Caesar had become a god. This was not unheard of. A lot of uh, Roman uh, emperors were deified after they died. Um, but what that made Octavian was, is Octavian changed his name to Caesar Augustus, and he was the son of a god, and so the message went out that the son of a god is now on a throne. So if you take your father, deify him, you in turn become the son of a deity. An excellent political move on Caesar Augustus' part. And so what he does to celebrate his now son of God status is he sends out heralds to tell everybody about it. Uh, This was um, Caesar's gospel. His good news was that the son of a God has come to bring peace and he rules by power and might and no one can oppose him. And anyone who tries will be crushed. There was nothing more fearful, ironically, than what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So basically Rome says, we're going to keep peace here. Or else, we'll kill you. That was basically the way that Rome, Rome did it. Uh, there's another fairly interesting use of the word evangelion found in something called the Preen Inscription dated in 9 BC, 
When Augustus became the emperor of Rome, a contest was created to ask the provinces of Rome to come up with the best way to honor for the occasion. Uh, the Prean inscription is a letter from proconsul Paulus Fabius Maximus engraved in stone in Prean, a city in modern-day Turkey, uh, with what he thought was going to be a good idea to celebrate the occasion. Um, I'm going to read this to you and just listen to the language that he uses to describe Caesar Augustus, who's the guy we were talking about. Um, Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the God, Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came for his reasons. Sounds really familiar to kind of a story we tend to pay attention to. He goes on to call Augustus' birth the beginning of all things, and further recommends that the calendar be completely redone, so that Augustus' birthday will be the start of each new year. This was actually adopted and carried around until about, uh, I think it was five, the 5th century B.C. in some areas. It's called the, the Macedonian calendar. We don't use it anymore because we don't have any allegiance to Augustus Caesar. And so it just didn't make any sense. So we bailed on it, but uh, no one really uses it. But they, they did do, do it for a little while. Um, thinking back on the contents of the inscription, what was the good news, the Evangelion, that was being communicated? Yes, the birth of Caesar Augustus. He is touted as a savior. He will arrange all things. His birthday was that of a god and the beginning of the good tidings, the Evangelion. Are you beginning to see a little how the good news of Jesus born in the middle of imperial Rome might start to rub some folks the wrong way? We're basically taking all the attributes that Rome tends to give to their gods and emperors and putting them on Jesus. He's not making a real good splash to start out in the Roman government. In comparison to the good news of the emperors, we have Jesus. Jesus is born in a small corner of the world. He is the son of the God and has come to bring peace. But he doesn't bring peace by the power of his mighty right hand. He doesn't control or demand or tax people. Uh, I do like that, that he doesn't, bring, he doesn't bring peace by the power of his mighty right hand. But he could. He just doesn't. <laughs> I like that about Jesus. God's agenda is always to maximize our created potential. Uh, he, invites, he invites people to be restored. He invites them to return to the intent of their created design. It is in letting go of the things that interfere with that expression of the design that we begin to truly experience freedom and peace. That should, get, that should take away a lot of the apprehension of people look at who they are and don't like themselves. There's a pretty much a fundamental flaw. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have the option to have low self-esteem. He believed in you. He made you. He died for you. You really couldn't be worth any more to anybody. That's just something to keep in mind. The good news, our gospel, is that through Jesus Christ, we can realize the potential without our fear or anxiety. There is a Son of God, there is peace, and there is a ruler on a throne. But he doesn't come from Rome. But think about this for a second. When we say gospel in relation to Jesus, we generally are thinking of what? We're talking about people's salvation. Generally like, are you going to heaven? Are you not going to heaven? Um, if you picked up a pamphlet or were assaulted by one of the Sharknado evangelist guys on a street corner and it was supposed to lay out the gospel message, what would they be saying? Usually the guys with the tracks and the, the pamphlet. I met one at Casey's the other day. I knew Jesus and I wanted to bail on Jesus after talking to this man. 
I thought I'd ask and see what he was offering for his gospel. And he basically handed me a pamphlet, and it said John 3.16 on the front. And I said, can you explain this to me? And then he wiped sweat from his brow and left. And I thought, well, if that's all the more that Jesus is interested in me, I don't, I feel like I, I shouldn't be involved. Of course, I know better, right? But I was really disappointed that if he was going to stand out on the public eye and talk to people about Jesus, that's the best he could offer. But basically, the pamphlet, the, the whole, the whole some sort of the pamphlet was about salvation. Here's how you get to heaven. Here's what you need to do. The, the, we'd expect the, the, the discussion to be about salvation, um, the steps, the means, the purpose, the goal. It's, it's our, our big end goal, right? When the Bible records that Jesus is talking about the good news, is that what he's talking about? Is he, is he talking about our salvation? We'll read a couple things that he says. Um, this starts in Matthew four twenty three, And he went throughout all Galilee, he's talking about Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Mark 1, 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 4 says, And when it was day, he departed, went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For that's why I was sent. Still no mention of the word salvation yet. Uh, Luke 8, Soon afterwards he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Luke 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And finally, Acts 8.12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So one thing to notice in all these texts is when the Bible is describing good news, it is always the good news of either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Jesus. It is never the good news of salvation. There can't be two Gospels. Paul warns in the Galatians about straying from singular Gospel that they were told. And you'll find that in Galatians 1.8. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. So our conclusion, here, our conclusion here should be that there can and is only one Gospel, and that is the good news of the kingdom of God, not the salvation of you. But that seems kind of weird. It, it might even seem insignificant. The gospel is the kingdom of God. So what? The big deal is that Jesus didn't come as a man just to save us alone. He came to show us what it looks like to live on earth in a way that is properly ordered and aligned with what God had set it up to be. It's, it's far more about what you're being adopted into than what you're being saved from. And if you can take that, that look on the gospel and your relationship with Christ, that it's much more about what you're being adopted into versus what you've been taken out of, that frees you from everything back here. Everything that you've been dragging around with you, everything that's been weighing you down, every decision you thought was wrong, every time you thought you let God down. It's more about what you're being adopted into, not what you're coming from. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care one bit. He's just happy to have you, he loves you, and he's adopting you into something that he's designed for you before you were born. The gospel is not about saying yes and just getting in. It's not about getting to heaven and getting six inches in the door. 
and then throwing your arms up like, yes, I'm in. That's lame. God has way more to offer than that. His love is way more abundant than just getting to heaven and being there. If your life and faith is in Jesus Christ, your eternal life has already started. It started now. It started when you said, I believe that you took the sins away that separate me from the Father. As soon as you said, I believe Jesus took this punishment from me so I can live eternally. Well, if you live eternally, that means your eternal life started now. It's not when you get to heaven. It's already, it's already begun. You also might be thinking that this really doesn't change the gospel as a salvation message. If you are thinking this, then you have missed what the scriptures teach about the kingdom. And more importantly, what they don't teach about the kingdom. Examples are a little difficult because it's tough to make the kingdom of God sound like it's a physical space because it's not. But if you were to think about it in, in physical characteristics, salvation, if the kingdom of God is a castle, salvation is the drawbridge that lets you in. The castle is still the castle. Salvation is just the way to get in there. If you think the kingdom of God is a freeway, uh, salvation would be the on-ramp. That's how you get on there. It's not the full road. It's just the beginning to what your life's going to be. Um. If, if the gospel or the good news is, is that through Jesus Christ, we have the ability to live in his kingdom right now. The implication is that we are not waiting for the action, for some action, to start some far day off. God is working right now. He's moving his kingdom forward, and he's looking for you. God is here and now, fully present, working all around us all the time, and he has given us a chance. He's invited us to be part of that. You can't stop or progress the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants. And invites you to be a part of it. You can't slow him down. You can't speed him up. You can be a part of what he's doing. At its core, this is what they're talking about. The kingdom of God. Salvation simply gives us access to what the good news is really all about. Much of what the New Testament says has nothing to do with salvation. It's just how to live in God's kingdom. We tend to be salvation-centric. It's all we think about. It's generally all we talk about to people when we talk to them about the kingdom of God. How do we get it? How do we get salvation? How do we keep it? Can we lose it? Did I do it right? Did I say the right thing? Was I under the water long enough when I was baptized? I, these are weird questions, right? These are weird questions to ask, but I've asked them myself. I mean, I'm not saying there's times when I've been in a disobedient phase of my life where I'm like, does Jesus really put up with this crap for me? He does. But I mean, that doesn't stop me from wondering, right? It just doesn't stop me from asking. But some of the questions are more important to show how they reveal the character of God than the actual implications of the answer. Because being saved is not the end game. Your salvation is just one aspect, the beginning of being part of the kingdom of God, but there's way much more to it. Sometimes we have this feeling, okay, you know, now what? I've learned about Jesus, I believe that he is who he says he is, and that he died for me, and I've, I've gotten baptized. So what do I do now? As a community, often our answer comes in a couple of ways. The first one is, welcome to salvation. Now just hang tight in this wretched, fallen, nasty world and wait till Jesus comes by and cleans the place up. Eh, yeah. I mean, a lot of Christian blogs are like that. Kind of watch yourself in them Christian blogs. Anybody frequent a lot of Christian blogs during the day just for random reading? Nobody else? Nobody reads? Christian, nothing? Well, good for you. Good. It's a cesspool of terrible sin. I wouldn't go in there. There's people bickering back and forth. It's just not the place for God's people to be. It's just me then. Okay, that's fair. I'll repent of it on my own later. <laughs> uh, okay, so anyway, stay out of the Christian blogs and the worldview where you get to say, hey, I'm saved, I'm fine. We'll just stand here and wait till Jesus comes, clean the rest of this wretched place up. There's a lot of people that have that, that mindset. 
Um, it pretty much is, don't worry, you're good, but everything that remains in this world is not. We're fine. This world's a fallen, terrible place. People like to do this, change the world for society. People like to say society is terrible. The culture's crazy. It's falling off the wagon. Everything's bad. But I'm okay because the Lord has saved me. Um, we're surrounded by hurricanes, tornadoes, and Miley Cyrus, and so we know that God's mad at us anyway. He's had enough of our world. It's <laughs> That's terrible. Um, it's the mindset that says, keep to yourself, only participate in church activities with church folks. Pray hard and heavy that he wraps this whole deal up soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world has fallen. I mean, that's kind of the salvation aspect, right? But is that, is that really what we want? Should that really be our reaction? We have hope, peace, perseverance. We don't really need those if he's coming, right? We'll just hang tight. We've gone with, instead of the hope, the peace, and the perseverance, we've gone with isolation and eventual rescue. Like the flood's coming, we're going to hang out at the house longer than we should, only to have to wave our undies for the helicopter to come get us later. That's kind of what we're doing. We're not helping anybody else out. We're just going to hang tight, wait for the terrible waters to succeed, and Jesus will come pick us up. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10. Life abundant is not waving your undies on a roof, waiting for the helicopter to come pick you up. That is not life abundant. That is not all of what God's offering. He's offering way more than that. So if you're standing there, is that the I'll take the life, but you can keep your abundance option? A few things to consider on the waited out process. For starters, heaven's already here. We talked about that. The new heaven and new earth described in Revelation 21 are a picture of restoration of this earth. God created this world, and in Genesis 1, he confirms that it is good. He said it's good. Stop saying it's bad. Stop taking everything in the world. It's junk. It's terrible. It's bad. I've saved through Jesus. God made the world, man. You can't. I mean, he said it's fine. He said it's good. There's parts of it that aren't great, okay? But you, you can't look around at the entire world and go, I'm great. I'll wait for Jesus. The rest of the world is junk. God made that world. That's a conversation you need to have with him. But, you know, watch where you're pointing that finger. And through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are made clean and ultimately restored as children of God. Our earth is going to go through the exact same process of cleansing and restoration. In the context of Jesus' return, when he says that we often beg for him to come and come quickly, he will be coming here to join us, not to take us to join him. Read Revelation. A lot of that language in the book of Revelation talks all about the earth being restored, the new Jerusalem coming here. Not everyone being whisked away is like some kind of uh, cloud castle with weird streets of gold that you don't walk on because you can flutter about. That's not really what it says. There's, the posters are cool, but that's not really how it goes down. Further, when we're considering that the get saved and waited out approach, we need to be reminded of exactly what we did to earn the results of Jesus' sacrifice. Are we deserving of that sacrifice? Ephesians 2 tells us, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our faith, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God was against us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that seems pretty clear. God's love, God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, that is what delivered you. So then what right do we have to look at the rest of the world, call it wretched, and pray that Jesus will return quickly that it may pass? Was I not wretched? Was I not dead in my trespasses like everybody else? In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked the following, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And and the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to love your neighbor as, if I wanted to love my neighbor as myself, I will pray that time will extend, that my neighbor may come to know Jesus just like I know him. Because he doesn't today. The mercies of God are new every morning. And I'm thankful that of those mornings, the one that brought the truth to me. And God allowed that morning to pass. I will not pray a morning of God's mercies from under the feet of another man in exchange for a respite from a world that is in need of restoration. The kingdom of God has given us an opportunity to influence both, and we're going to take it. The apostle Paul is faced with a similar circumstance at the church of Philippi, of Caesar Philippi, and he writes them, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to leave, depart, and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So just like Paul, just like Paul got done describing, we eagerly await the coming of Jesus' return. True. But even as it tarries, his kingdom is still here, and it has been. It's active and moving. We are citizens of the kingdom right now. And the citizens of the kingdom don't duck and cover and wait it out until Jesus comes. The citizens of the kingdom don't separate themselves from a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear the good news of the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom extend the grace that has been shown to them to those who, that are not part of the kingdom so that they can see what it looks like. Citizens of the kingdom follow Jesus. We do the things he did. We hang out with the people he hung out with. We go where he went because he's the king of our kingdom. And like the kingdom, we are to be active and moving boldly with the hope of the Holy Spirit. And our lives will change because of it. And the lives of the people around us will change because of it. God is, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I get confused because I have conversations with people about Jesus um, Sometimes at work and sometimes outside, just, you know, talk to some fellas. And, and sometimes it just blows me away how obvious God is and how unobvious they want to make him. And sometimes I feel like if, if we were just a little bit more bold in, in our position in the kingdom of God, we wouldn't have to try so hard. You know what I'm saying? It'd just be kind of obvious. Most of the guys that I know that strengthen me in my faith in Christ it almost feels like they put no effort into it because that's just where they are, right? I don't have to try to be, I don't have to, I don't have, it's like being an actor in a play, right? Like I don't have to try to act like a dad. I'm a dad. They, they, there's, there's two girls that pull on my shirt and yell at me and constantly want something and broke stuff and I love them. I don't have to act like that. That's just the deal. 
Being in the kingdom of God is the exact same thing. You shouldn't have to act like it or wonder, you know, what do I do next? I mean, there's help and there's, there's counseling and there's, there's, there's a getting accountability and there's people to help. But, I mean, if you feel like you're throwing it all up there as a, as, as a, you don't know what's going on, we need to talk about that relationship part. It shouldn't be confusing. It shouldn't be puzzling. Anyway, sorry, I got off my notes there. Uh, which leads to the second common response. I got off Ben's notes. Uh, which leads to the second common response to when we hit, I believe in Jesus, what now? What now will be a better person? You believe in Jesus, don't you? It comes off kind of like a trade. Now that Jesus has done this thing for you, has offered you salvation, the least you can do is try and pull yourself together. Stop doing all those things or Jesus will be unhappy with you. Like Jesus has a behavior chart that he keeps on the heavenly fridge that is just waiting to be filled up with a bunch of sad face stickers to mark all of your failures. One, that's a big fridge. Two, it's a lot of stickers. The truth of the matter is, is sin separates us from God. That's a fact. It's a cold hard fact. Doesn't matter which one you pick. Dan likes to use the chain where he chains a bunch of like first grade loops together and then he cuts it with scissors and says, doesn't matter which one of these chains that you break. Here's God, here's you. All these things are sins. It doesn't matter which area of your life you sin, as soon as it's cut, you're separated. Small, big, doesn't matter. Sin separates people from God. That's true. Cheap grace means living as though God ignores or condones our sin. We just noticed that in the media in the past couple weeks, didn't we? One of the, one of the I don't know, for some reason I find this strengthening, but that dude from Penn and Teller, I think it's Penn, not Teller. Which, who's the guy that talks? Penn talks. Taylor doesn't talk. Anyway, Penn's, Penn's an atheist, an avowed atheist, pretty hardcore. And he, he had a video on YouTube a couple years ago, and he basically said, um, do you get offended when people come up to you after the show and try to talk to you about Jesus? He goes, I'd be offended if they didn't. How much do you have to hate a guy to not, if you believe that your salvation is found through believing in this guy right here, how much do you have to hate me not to tell me about that? It's pretty refreshing. I don't know, point of view from an atheist? I mean, he... There's not really many more, more invested atheists than this guy. He's a pretty big atheist. But he said, I would be offended. I would be hurt. How much do you have to hate me not to tell me that information? Well, look what happened in the last couple of weeks. Guy got on TV, or a magazine per se, and he said the truth. And people said, why do you got to discriminate against me? Why do you got to hate me? Why do you got to make me feel bad? Why do you got to put me in a box and make me out to be this person? Ah. Eh? If you don't love someone enough to tell them they're separated from God, you don't love them. That's hard. It's not easy, but it's the truth. I mean, there's ways of delivering these things in not a hateful manner. I'm not saying that every person that says has something to say about sin is not standing on a soapbox. But I guess what I'm saying is when you deliver that message with love, it's still the truth. And you really got to hate a guy not to tell him that they're separated from the Father. You really got to hate him. I don't know, that, when, when I heard that guy say that, that hit me really hard because there's a lot of people that I'm not showing a whole lot of love to. I'd rather just have them not be my problem. I'd rather have them still feel high self-esteem, have them feel good about themselves, the life that they're living, even though it's going to end in their destruction. And I think, ah, I'll just leave them because I want them to be friendly with me. That's lame. That's not love. That's lame. We can walk away. What was I saying? Dang, this is why I don't do this. I'm the amateur fella. 
Sins does separate us from God. That's the truth. It's the chain and the scissors and whatnot. Okay. Anyway. Um, so when we, at, let's see. But I think we represent the heart of God when we treat the terms on which his kingdom functions as equivalent to getting our name uh, on the I've done bad things board. Uh, John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we can walk away from this thinking that every time we say an unkind word or look at something we shouldn't on the computer or let our anger get the best of us, then God looks right at us and shouts down, Liar! You don't know me. And then he puts the sad face on the board and is disappointed. But notice the premise under which the statement from the Bible comes from. It says, we know that we have come to know him. We don't draw nearer to God by doing good things or being good people. There are no good people. There's just Jesus and everybody else. We draw nearer to God by getting to know him. And the outpouring of that is the love of God is perfected in us. Obedience comes when we see God correctly, when we pursue him fiercely. It's ironic that sometimes we can seem to hold an inconsistent view of the love of God, where we acknowledge that the love of God to accept us into his kingdom is irrelevant of works. He did all the work. He died for us. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We all believe that. But that once we're in his love, then it starts to become dependent on how good we do. I fall into that trap. I know the grace of Jesus Christ, and I still think, eh, I've not been acting very well lately. He might be disappointed in me. Sometimes I won't pray as often because of it. I don't really want to face him. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want him giving me the judgments. All of which he describes in his Bible is not what he's going to do, but that's what I think. I think I'll just, maybe I'll tone my Bible reading down just a little bit so he can cool off and not be as upset. It's silly. I know, but I do it. I'm just being honest. I do it. Um, Once there, we acknowledge that the love of God to accept us into his kingdom is irrelevant of works. But once we're in there, sometimes we forget that. It's just not true. C.S. Lewis wrote that we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, which we know we can't do, whereas he really just wants a people of a particular sort. So that kind of throws that works thing right off the window. And the sort of people that God wants are those who hope to conform themselves to his character, not to follow all of his rules. At this point, sometimes our minds start to shift to James and, and his insistence that faith without works is dead. And we have trouble reconciling the verses from Ephesians that we read earlier that tell us that we are saved by faith, not works, so that no man could boast. But these two things are not incompatible. In fact, listen to the verse that comes after the section of Ephesians we read earlier. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The work of Christ on the cross was a gift that we could not earn that allowed us into the kingdom of God. Upon becoming a citizen of the kingdom, we are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it is through this that we get to know him. And as we know God and abide in him, we start to be obedient to him. And good works, works, which we are called to do, come from the obedience. God doesn't call us to be better people by ourselves. He calls us to love him, know him, Abide in him so obedience and good works may follow, because that's how the kingdom works. God is and has always been the center of the kingdom. So ultimately, 
people say, what now? What now is the wrong question to ask because it presents salvation as a checklist item. Is it in a long list of stuff that God wants done? What we have to realize is that the gospel is not a salvation message. Sure, salvation is contained in the message, but the gospel message is an invitation to live within a new context. It cries out to us to let go of false realities and live in alignment with God's ordering of the universe. He invites us to trust the story of God is telling and tell it with our lives and within our context. And it also invites us not to only trust the story, but to engage in it, to give our whole energy to God's agenda for every moment. To reduce that message to simply how to ask Jesus into your heart misses the core of what a relationship with him actually looks like. The gospel of Jesus, the good news, is that there is so much more that we can live for. And we understand that work in the kingdom, what it's like to be a citizen, and we can align ourselves with God's plan for the world by getting to know him. His word reveals to us, his word reveals how to get to know him to us. His people reveal that to us. His son revealed that to us. If we want to see changes in our world in 2014, don't start with a checklist of moral items. And start by focusing your time and energy on how to get into a relationship with God, how to model his character, not his checklist of things to do, not the sins that you've been doing wrong or the things you need to fix or you need to stop, whatever. Get yourself in relationship with Jesus Christ. Learn to model his character. Those behaviors will leave because God is light and sin is dark and they can't stay in the same place. You can't fix these things. Jesus Christ fixes these things. And salvation is the beginning to a life in the kingdom of God that already started. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I thank you for this opportunity for us to get together and uh, talk about you and your son and the salvation that you've given us, but more importantly, the home that you've already made for us. Um, The salvation is just you opening the door. The home is where we're going to be for eternity. And uh, God, I pray that you can just shift our minds, that if our mindset is, hey, I just want to get two inches in the door and shake hands with with Peter and then just be done, then that's way less than what you're offering. You're offering us a kingdom that starts now and an attorney that never ends. And I pray that we can abide in you like you abide in the Father. In your name I pray, amen.